This is Real Estate Rookie Show 371. Do you know how to find a hard money lender? Does it Yelp exist for that? Or FHA loans, what are the pros and cons? We're gonna find out today. I'm Ashley and he's Tony. And welcome to the Real Estate Rookie Podcast, where every week, three times a week, we're bringing you the inspiration, motivation, and stories you need to hear to kickstart your investing journey. Now, today, we're gonna be talking about tax strategy for real estate rookies, which is incredibly important. We've got a special guest, Natalie Colodi, who is on episode 368, and she's back to give you some more real estate strategies. But before we jump into that, First, we want to talk about hard money lenders. What are they? How do you find the good ones? So let's dive in. Okay, our first question is from Carl Anthony. How do you decide what hard money lender to use? Is there some kind of Yelp or review system somewhere? So this is like uh, on the MLS, like uh, different websites, ZillowRealtor.com. You can rate your real estate agent that you used on there. So I have not run across any kind of rating system. Um, if you do go to the Bigger Pockets forums and you ask people if they have recommendations or referrals, or if you're thinking of uh, using a certain lender, go ahead and post it into the Bigger Pockets forums and see if anybody else has used that lender and get their you know experience from them. Uh, I think one other thing you could do is search the county records too in your area because you are able to see who has a lien on property and you can search that company you're thinking of using and get a hold, find the mailing address of the property owner and call them up and, or mail them and just say, Hey, I'm wondering how was your experience using this hard money lender? Tony, what about you? What kind of uh, ideas do you have for getting referrals or recommendations on hard money lenders? Um, BP does have the lender finder. So that's, that's a tool that, that you can use, uh, Carl. And uh, I, you know, I think the biggest thing is that you, you want to date around a little bit. Um, so talk to as many hard money lenders as you can, some of the big national ones, some of the more local ones, and just compare uh, both the customer service and the cost of doing business with that lender. Every hard money lender is going to have slightly different um, like packages or, or, or products that they can offer to you. Some are going to charge you super high rates if it's your first time doing this. Others are going to uh, say like, hey, even if you're a first time investor, we'll work with you, no problems. Um, so I think talking to as many different harmony lenders as possible is is good. But what I've found is that if you can just talk to someone who's already used a, a company before and get their firsthand experience, a lot of times that's the best way to let someone else do that homework for you. And then you're just drafting behind the hard work they've already done. Now, what I will say is for a lot of folks that I know that, that use hard money heavily, most of them have, uh, you know, used multiple different companies in the past. So a lot of it, a little bit of it is a trial and error, just trying different companies, see what works. But that's what I've seen, Ash, to, to kind of help find that, that right hard money lender for each investor. Yeah. And just real quick, before we move on to the next question, some of the things you should be asking are not just bland questions like, how was your experience? Or, you know, did it go okay? Would you use them again? Like, those are great questions, but get more into the nitty gritty of it as to, you know, when you pull, what was the process like when you had to draw money out for your contractors? If you, part of the rehab cost was involved, what was it like when you closed on the property? Uh, I had a very bad experience where we were supposed to close on a Friday and there was title issues because the hard money lender didn't do a lot of deals in New York state 
And we had to wait and close until Monday until we could get a title attorney that had to come in and clarify that me and my attorney were correct and they were wrong. (laughs) But um, so asking specifics about, you know, the different fees that you're charged and the process of everything and also how much experience they have doing loans in your market. Okay, hopefully some of those questions and places to look for hard money lenders was helpful helpful for you guys. We are gonna take a quick break and we're gonna come back and we're gonna talk about estimating rehab costs. So you're gonna find out if Tony was born with a construction belt on his hip or if he had to learn all of these things too. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right, get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. Are current interest rates making you depressed about cash flow? What if it didn't have to be that way? Rent to Retirement has 2.99% seller financing available on turnkey properties. You heard that right. That's a seller financed 2.99% interest rate where the average cash flow is over $900 per month. They also have options where you can put as low as 5% down on multiple investment properties with no PMI. Rent to Retirement is the nation's leading turnkey investment company that understands what it takes to be successful in today's dynamic real estate market. Their reputation speaks for itself with more five-star reviews than any other company on the Bigger Pockets website. Rent to Retirement offers fully turnkey properties that are newly built or renovated, leased and managed, allowing you to invest with confidence in the markets that offer the best returns. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com. Or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. Okay. 
We are back after our short break. And our first question is from Rebecca. Big newbie looking into burr. For the rehab portion, how do you get the knowledge to estimate repair costs? How would you then estimate the ARV? Thank you in advance. So this is a very common question is how do you learn this stuff? And uh, first, let's uh, break down what Burr is. So this is a real estate investing strategy. You can buy the property. You can rehab the property. You can rent the property and then you can refinance the property and then repeat the process on another property. Then ARV is after repair value. So the first recommendation I'm going to give a super easy one is on the Bigger Pockets bookstore is the book on estimating rehab costs by Jay Scott. But Tony, um, I think if you're a longtime listener, everybody knows you don't know a ton about construction. You're learning, learning, learning as time goes on. But starting out, you definitely weren't swinging the hammer. So how did you become knowledgeable in in doing rehabs? Yeah. So um, first, I think that there's a misconception from a lot of new investors that you have to be an expert in the actual rehab work itself. Like, oh, man, I got to know how to lay tile. I got to know how to, uh, you know, frame and hang drywall. And I got to know how to repair a roof. Like, that's not necessarily what it means to be um, a real estate investor. Like, if you look at Grant Cardone or Sam Zell or the guys running, guys and girls running BlackRock and all these big hedge funds, like they're probably not the ones that are laying the tile, right? So um, it, it's all about making sure that you can factor those costs in, which I think is what Re- Rebecca's question here is. But um, what I found to do, and, and this was my approach, is when I did my very first rehab property, it was my very first out-of-state burr. That was my first re- real estate deal ever. My approach was super simple. I looked at my property. I got a very clear picture of what the current condition of that property was. I looked at other properties that had sold that were rehabbed in that market. And I took those rehabbed properties. I went to a few different general contractors and said, hey, here's what my property looks like today. Here's what I want it to look like. Please give me an estimate. Give me a, 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 a bid on what it'll take to get the property from point A to point B. And I talked to three different contractors in that first deal. And that was what gave me a general sense of what I might spend when it comes to rehabbing a property. So it, obviously, uh, Jay Scott's book on estimating rehab costs is incredibly detailed. It's a great way to really nail that uh, that estimate uh, step. But if you just want to, you know, as beginner as you can possibly get, let the contractors who know those numbers like the back of their hands give you that number. And the goal of getting three is that you can average between those three different bids to find uh, kind of the most realistic cost. Yeah. And for me, I took on a partner who knew construction and I learned from him. Um, Our good friend, Kara Beckman from Beckman House, she, when she would hire contractors starting out, she didn't know a ton about rehabs or anything like that. And she would literally follow the contractor around and ask questions like, why are you doing that? And not because she wanted to do the work herself, but she wanted a better understanding of how the work was done so that she would know if people were doing the work correctly or not. And she had a a good comprehension of what she needed to actually get a project done, too. So that's something else you could always do. I mean, I think of my contractors and they would hate have me over their shoulder, but uh, maybe it's something you could pay for, for them to uh, teach you a couple things. And that's another thing too, right? Like you could just follow the contractor around when they're giving you a bid and just ask those questions, right? And, and that starts to give you a better sense of, of what it looks like as well. But Rebecca, I, I think 
don't overestimate or, or don't overcomplicate the, the estimation piece. Uh, if it's your first deal, lean on the expertise of the general contractors in that market. But the, the second part of her question was the ARV, like how do you estimate your after repair value? And this step is honestly, to me, way easier than estimating the rehab costs. Um, all you have to do to estimate your ARV is identify properties that are similar and form, function, size, et cetera, to your subject property and see what those properties sold for. Now, there's some some caveats here, right? Um, first is time. You don't want to go back too far into the past. Like if you found a property, say it's a, a perfect model match to your home, but it sold three years ago, <laughs> uh, you probably don't want to use that number. I know for me, I typically try and go to like a 90-day window. If I can't find enough, then I might push it out to, to six months. But that 90-day window I found is, is pretty solid for me. So time is important. Um, style is important as well. Like say you've got a, a single family ranch style home that was built in the, I don't know, in the, in the 90s. You don't want to compare that to a two-story new construction that was built two weeks ago. Because even if they're right next door, those are two different styles of home that might attract a different style of, of buyer. And usually the, the appraisals will look a little bit different as well. So uh, that's a big one. Proximity. Uh, you don't want to go, and this will vary from city to city, like actually where you're at, you know, it, it's a little bit more rural. You've got bigger parcels of land. You, uh, you might be able to go out a little bit further, but in like a traditional suburban uh, setting, you probably don't want to go out more than like a, a quarter of a mile, half a mile, kind of start with that smaller radius first. Because again, if you go a mile out, you might be crossing uh, a major highway. You might be crossing like a, a major street that kind of divides the city in, into two different sections. So those are the things to look for as you're, you're kind of looking for that, that ARV for those comps for the ARV, I should say. So for a third question, we have one that says, can someone please give me a rundown on the benefits or cons of using FHA loans? I'm looking to purchase my first property with plans to house hack and save for my next investment. Okay. So first thing Tony comes to mind for FHA loans, low down payment. Woo. Don't have to bring a lot of money to the table. Okay. So we're talking three and a half percent to 5% down, but there are some conventional loans. So FHA loan and conventional loans are different. Conventional is your standard loan that you can go and buy it investment property, you could buy your primary, whatever that is. And that's usually 20%, but they're actually giving out that at 5%. So my sister just went and got, um, you know, the pre-approval and it was a conventional loan for 5%. So part of 5% down. So part of that pros and cons of using an FHA loan has been the con of having to do an FHA inspection. So if you're okay with 5%, you're going to be better off going the conventional route because you don't have to do that FHA inspection. So you're going to do your inspection on your own, bringing in an inspector to tell you what repairs need to be done, doing your due diligence. But then FHA brings in their own inspector and they want to make sure that the property is habitable, that you can live in it. So forget fixer-uppers. The FHA isn't going to approve those. I, I remember when my cousin purchased a property, she was using FHA loan. And they had to install hand railings in certain spots because they were not up to code. And that's one thing FHA flagged. So there's different criteria that they'll look for in the inspection. And they'll want to either have that fixed before closing or tell you that, sorry, we won't fund this deal. And I think as an add-on to that, Ash, because a lot of sellers know and understand that those FHA inspections can be pretty rigorous. If you have 
maybe say you're offering $300,000 on this property and someone else is also offering 300,000, but, but you've got FHA and they've got conventional or some other type of debt. A lot of times, all things being equal, all else being equal, the seller will choose the non-FHA offer over the FHA offer because they know that the likelihood of closing is higher. So that's another con of the FHA is that uh, it can also make your offer a little bit weaker. So sometimes you might have to offer additional things, maybe a higher purchase price, maybe a bigger EMD, maybe whatever it may be to, to kind of make the seller feel more confident about your ability to close. Um, when we bought our first home, our, our first primary residence, we did conventional 5% down. And um, we had the option of either going FHA or conventional. We chose conventional as well. Um, so it, it, there's a lot that goes into that decision. But um, FHA is great for the down payment piece, but you got to make sure the property kind of satisfies those requirements. Okay. So we have a special treat for you guys. We know after three questions, you guys are sick of hearing us talk. So we are bringing a guest today. We have Natalie Kalati coming on today, and she's going to get into the one thing that you can never undo if your taxes are filed wrong. This means you cannot file an amended return for it. You can't go back in time and fix this. Who can take losses with a partnership? We're also going to talk about that. If you're in a partnership, does everybody get the tax benefits? And we're going to go over so much more. So stick around. We'll be right back after this break with Natalie. When Bigger Pockets started podcasting, no one thought we needed a store. But then books, so many books, best-selling books, rookie books, partnership books. We needed the best real estate bookstore ever. So we chose Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch stage to the first order stage to the did we just sell out the whole store stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling real estate books or retro clothing, Shopify's platform helps you sell everywhere, online or in person. Now, speaking of online, did you know Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better than other leading commerce platforms? And no matter how big you grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control of your business. And that's why we chose Shopify for the bigger pocket bookstore. So sign up for a $1 per month trial at shopify.com slash BP rookie, all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com slash BP rookie now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash BP rookie. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation home owning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. Hiring? Your search is over. Really, there's no need to search. Match instead with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates super fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling 
screening and messaging to hire top talent faster. Speaking of top talent, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. But why do I love Indeed? Because I'm busy and scrolling through 300 resumes is not helping my business grow. It's actually making it slow. With Indeed, I can hire faster and know I'm getting someone who can do the job. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to post your jobs with more visibility at Indeed.com slash rookie. Just go to Indeed.com slash rookie right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash rookie. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Natalie, thank you so much for joining us for this week's Rookie Reply. We always love it when we can have a special guest come on and give expert advice here. So we wanted to to start off with um, a question here as to what does a CPA need to know about you? So what information should you be giving your CPA? And maybe these should be questions they should even be asking you. So um, Natalie, first, if you want to give us a little background actually about you, and then we can jump right into that question. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been in tax for about a decade and specialized in real estate tax since 2017. Um, And I'm also a national tax educator. So I teach CE for other tax professionals all about real estate. So I get to see both sides of the coin. Um, When it comes to things that you want to make sure your CPA knows or your EA and that they're asking about you, a big thing that's overlooked is kind of looking forward. So we hear about a lot of tax strategies, but knowing which ones make sense for you You should really make sure that they understand how quickly you're planning to grow and scale um, and kind of what the next three to five years looks like for you to know what makes sense to implement today, what might make sense two years from now, and just sort of create a roadmap for how you're going to grow and what pieces should be put in place to make sure you have the foundation for the specific growth you're looking for. So it's not one size fits all. So you want to just have that forward looking Um, kind of talk with them about what your end goal is. Because I talked to some clients who are like, I want 40 rentals by the end of the year and want to be out. And for other people, it's like a slow one a year, going to retire at 50. So getting on the same page with that will really help determine what applies to you. And then what about any passive losses? Do they need to know about your income? If you have active income, passive income, things like that to help with your tax planning? Yeah, with passive losses, this is an area because again, with your long-term rentals, if your income's too high, if it creates a loss, it's passive and you can't always use it. So 
What that means is a few things. Make sure your tax professional, if you know that you had passive losses prior, like maybe you switched to just using someone now or you switched firms, there's a worksheet that tracks those passive loss carryover schedule. Make sure they have that and make sure you see it on your return. These get kind of lost track of easily when you switch software. So you don't want to lose those because they're like a piggy bank. So something else I'll hear from investors is I can't use my losses this year. My income's too high. So my CPA said not to worry about it. We're not going to try to generate more loss. And that's not the right mindset. Even if you can't use those passive losses today, you still want to create as much of a loss as you're entitled to. And so you want to make sure your accountant knows everything you put in for cost. If you were traveling before you purchased the property and you had costs incurred there, you had inspections prior to purchase, maybe you paid a wholesaler or a bird dog fee, someone to find you this property, any of those costs they should know about. And those won't necessarily be in your your books or they won't be on your purchase documents because it was prior. So make sure any costs that you incurred along the whole process get in front of them. And then even if it's creating a passive loss that you can't use today, you get to use it someday. So you never want to just not maximize these. And the way I like to describe this to people is your passive losses can build up and then you get to cash in on them at some point. And it's a lot like going to the arcade. And if you start earning those tickets and instead of getting to use a few tickets this year to get, you know, a piece of bubble gum, you get to save your tickets for 10 years and buy the pinball machine on the top shelf. That's what your losses are doing. So let those accumulate and then you just have this bank of loss. So when you inevitably sell a rental, which we all do every few years, we get tired of a market or it's gone up a ton in value or you just hate the neighborhood, whatever it is, that gain can be offset with those built up losses. So you want to save your tickets for that top shelf item. You want to save your losses to wipe out that $200,000 gain. So even if you can't take, you know, that $1,000 loss this year, build it up, keep accumulating it and you'll get to use it down the road. They never disappear. So always strategize and always make sure anything you paid for gets in front of your accountant. I have a lot of partnerships, Natalie, and I, I, I want to understand how these losses play out in joint ventures and, you know, shared LLCs, things of that nature. Before I do, I just want to, I want to make sure I'm tracking what you said here. It, it almost makes me think of, uh, everyone listening to this podcast is probably old enough to remember like when cell phone plans had minutes restrictions every month. And then like the cell phone providers started to, to promote these rollover minutes. Like, Hey, if you don't use all your minutes this month, they roll over to the next month. So it, it sounds like the, the passive losses almost operates the same way where even if you don't use all of your passive losses for this year, they'll, they'll roll over to the next year. Then they'll roll over to next year until you actually end up using them. So it, it sounds like there's really no downside to trying to maximize your paper losses each year. But what I want to know is say that you maybe you got bad tax advice. And say you bought a, you know, I'm in the short-term rental industry. Say I bought a, a short-term rental in 2023, but I didn't do a cost seg because I, I didn't really need the, the write-off. Can I now go back in 2024 to retroactively create that paper loss for 2023? Like, what does that even look like? Yeah. So with short-term rentals specifically, because if they're under seven days and you participate, they're non-passive. So we can often use those losses. So especially there, we want to be really strategic with creating them. When you buy a short-term rental, um, in that year, you can do a cost segregation if you want. And what that does is separates out about 
25% of the building value into stuff that you can almost always write off in that first year. So it creates this large loss. It is a year-to-year test is the other thing. So the short-term rental getting to use those losses is kind of a one and done often. Like you have to keep buying more properties if you want to keep checking into those big losses. But it's also something that's looked at based on the specific year. So what I'll hear from people is, well, I don't want to manage it though to be able to get this loss. I want to hand it off or like, I don't want to deal with a short-term rental. I want midterm or long-term. I don't have time for that. If you buy a rental December 1st and furnish it and rent it short-term for that month where you, can you manage it for 30 days? (laughs) Then January 1st, you can make it a midterm. You can make it, I don't, I do not care what you do on January 1st. There's no like negative clawback, but it's an annual test. So if you're buying towards the end of the year, if you can have the average guest stay under seven days and manage it for just that time of that couple weeks left of the year, you would qualify to do this cost segregation and create a big loss you could use. So that can be a really strategic tax plan. If it's a couple years down the road and you're like, wait, my accountant never mentioned a cost seg. Can I do that now? You can. Um, if it has been any more than two years, basically if if the depreciation has showed up on a tax return for only one year, you can either go back and change that year and take the loss then. Or there's a form 3115 that says, I'm going to change my accounting type. I'm going to change my method. You can do that in any future year. So what this means is if year two, you decide, like you learn about cost seg, you can file that form in year two. If you're in year five, you can file that form and do the cost seg and take, you get to take that extra depreciation in the year you file. So this is another good planning point because if in the year you bought the rental, you don't need those losses, maybe like, let's say you already have a big loss from something else or your income isn't very high. You might want to wait till a couple of years down the road, do your cost seg and take your losses that year with that form, because maybe that year your income is much higher. And so you want to have a hundred thousand dollar write-off. So never, um, it's always worth asking about a cost segregation and bringing it up with your accountant or your new tax professional, even if it's years down the road, because you can still do it. You can still go back and get that adjustment now. The longer you own it, kind of the less benefit there is, right? Because if you're in year 20 out of 27, we've already sucked up a whole lot of those write-offs. But if you're in the first 10 years, I would say, it is always worth looking at doing that cost segregation, even if you're in a later year. Um, And with bonus depreciation, that thing that says you can write off 100% of an expense if its life is under 20 years, that was dropping down. So like it was 80% for this year, it's supposed to drop to 60. There's current legislation that could pass that would bump it back to 100. But also with that amount, it's based on the year you put the rental in service. So any rookies who bought a rental between 2017 and 2022 and put it in service, it is always worth looking at that cost side because you're locked in on those 100%. So like you, it's based on the year you started renting it not the year you do the cost seg. So much good information there. And I think it's reassuring for folks to know that even if you maybe missed it, maybe you got bad tax advice, maybe you didn't realize it was an option, you can still go back to try and make it make it sound. One other question I did want to touch on for the the losses was partnerships. So again, I have a lot of different partnerships that I do. Most of them are joint ventures, but I think one that might be interesting, we just closed on our first commercial property. It's a 13 unit kind of boutique hotel in, uh, in Utah. I own 21%. I have another partner that owns 9%, and then um, another 70% is owned by two other partners. So there's four of us on this deal. 
how does the losses work when you've got a, a mix of four people that own a property together? Most often, the losses are allocated based on ownership percentages. There's more complicated ways to do it, but there's a whole bunch of hoops. So just as a starting point, assume you're just getting your percentage. Something to kind of caution about is if you're in a partnership with someone else and you're trying to do that short-term loophole, that material participation test you have to pass is based on each person. So like that person needs to materially participate to get the benefits. So if you do a cost segregation on that property and let's say it has a $400,000 loss and you guys are all like, yes, this is going to be incredible. But Tony, you're the only one who put any time in on it. Your partners are passive and they're like, this is awesome. Tony knows what he's doing. He's managing it. He's dealing with all the time. His hours are working on it. And we just sit back and collect a check. They won't qualify to take their portion of the losses against their income because they didn't materially participate. The most common tests are 100 hours and more time than anyone else. So you're kind of pitted against each other. On your large apartment complex, it's possible that both of you, because the next test is 500 hours. So it's possible two people put in 500 hours, but on a single family, probably not. So if you and a friend, you know, partner on a single family in the Smokies, if one person's kind of putting in the time and the hours, their time's going to trump the more time than the other guy. So if there's a short-term rental, there's a good chance only one of the people will kind of meet that criteria to get to use the losses against their income. The other people still get their share of the losses. It just goes into that save your tickets bucket where they might not get to use it this year. Um, and one other cautionary tale is if you've used an accountant who didn't know real estate or even if like maybe you didn't notice this, check your return. So for that bonus depreciation, that awesome thing where you get to write off that big chunk, often 100%, if you choose not to do that, um, if you there's an election on your tax return where you can say, uh, we're opting out of doing this, we're not going to take that big write off all at once. That's permanent. So you can't ever change your mind about that. So if you're working with a new tax professional, look through all the pages of your return. And if you see something that says under code 168K, I'm opting out of bonus. Stop. Pause. Like red flag. Like stop. <laughs> because once that's there, you can't go back and get it. So like you said, what if you're five? I work with someone new and I learn about COSEG and I want to go back and do it. You can always do it. But if they've ever put that election there saying, we're not going to take this, we can't take it, even if it's down the road. So always look for that election and you don't want to have it. So before you sign off, if it says you're choosing to not take bonus and you're opting out, pause and tell them to please remove that. Like Unless there's a very specific reason, it really hurts you down the road um, when you decide to kind of circle back and do a cost seg. You can't break out that 100% write-off if that election has ever been on that asset. So basically what you're saying is if that is, there is no going back and redoing it. This is one of the very few things that if you do it wrong or your tax preparer does it wrong for you, there's no going back for it. What would be one of the reasons that a tax preparer would actually check that box for you? Yeah, I've got some great responses on this. So I interviewed someone who by default kept doing that on like the trial returns. And when I asked them why they kept opting out, they said they were just taught to always do that. So option one is just they don't know, they just always have. So that could that could be it. Sometimes there is a valid reason. Like I've had clients where we actually want the loss spread out across five years instead of all at once. They might have, it might line up with their income better. So if there's a specific reason to do that, sure. But I've had a situation where a client had a campground. It was all 
assets where we could have used a ton of bonus depreciation. They did a ton of renovations. We could have had this huge write-off, but their prior accountant opted out of that. So when I got it and I was like, this qualifies for this short-term loophole, we can take these losses. We could, but we couldn't create those extra losses with bonus because they had just decided not to. Um, So there's a handful of reasons they might. I think a lot of accountants do because they either don't know short-term rentals can be non-passive. So in their head, they're like, there's no reason to take it. They can't use the loss. And sometimes they just don't have a reason really. It's just, why would we do this? So just be cautious. Just like keep an eye on that because it's not revocable. So you can't ever change your mind. It is on specific classes. So like you can choose not to take it on only five-year stuff or only 15. So there can be planning there, but if there was no discussion, if there was no talk about it and you have it on your return, definitely ask about it first. Well, Natalie, thank you so much for taking the time to come on this rookie reply. And if anyone listening would like to submit a question for us or an expert to answer on the show, you can go to biggerpockets.com slash reply. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom. And the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com slash deals. Enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and boom, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. There's free resources only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.